Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Scott Creason, Conservation Director of Friends of the Eel River. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, the Eco News. Don't forget, you can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. My guest today is Ken Burton, a familiar voice in these airwaves. Ken is an integral member of the Redwood Region Audubon Society. He coordinates the Saturday morning Arcata Marsh Walk Program. He is the author of Common Birds of Northwest California and A Birding Guide to Humboldt County. Ken is also a frequent contributor to KHSU's Sound Ecology Series and an occasional Eco News Report host himself. Welcome back to the Eco News Report, Ken. Thank you, Scott. It has been a long time since I've been on this side of the mic. <laughs> well, it's high time you got over there. You've got a lot to tell us about. You're here with an analysis of, of trends in regional bird population that strikes me as at least disturbing and fascinating and maybe much more important than that. Broadly speaking, these data suggest that maybe two-thirds of the bird species in the area are in decline, and those declines may be accelerating. How did these numbers come into focus for you? Well, so as you mentioned, I've written this book, Common Birds of Northwest California, and each species account in that book has a graphic representation of what you could call report frequency. It's really like a strip calendar kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah each each of week year. of the yeah. year. And and that, that information comes from a program called eBird that I think we'll circle back to later on. Yeah. But in the course of revising that book twice in the last six years, I've seen some just visual changes in those charts as I've, as I've updated them using more recent data. Yeah. And so after this last one, the third edition, which is at the printer right now, I decided to dive into the numbers a little bit more rigorously and actually see what, you know, what was going on. So we're not talking here about changes from the 19th century to, to now. We're talking about changes in the last couple of decades? Yeah. So the first, well, Ebert itself is a, is a pretty new program, and people have really only started using it seriously in the last 10 to 15 years. Okay. But it does accept data going back at least to 1900. Mm -hmm. So people can put in their historical sightings, which usually don't have quite the same rigor as the, the current ones. And that can cause some issues right there that I think we'll also touch on right, later on. Right. But yes, so I was looking, I compared data prior to 2013 with data from 2008 to 2017. So they're actually overlapping time periods. Just a little bit. And so you wouldn't necessarily expect to see big differences, but I did. And so what I'm doing now is sort of exploring the potential reasons for that. So let's talk just for a second about some of those big differences. What are the things that kind of jump out at you? A couple of examples. Yeah, well, so as you said, like two-thirds of the species that I looked at, 150 species, two-thirds of them had negative trends in the frequency with which they were reported between those two time periods. And a third of them, that is half of the negative ones, were double-digit declines. So 10% or more. 10% or more, yeah. So that means they're being reported that much less often in the second time period than in the first time period. And again, these are overlapping periods, right. which suggests to me that something is going on and it's happening 
now in real time. So what kind of and, bird species are you talking about? Well, there it, it really runs the gamut. I mean, from there are there are declines in in every conceivable group that you might look at. They're more consistent among land birds than among water birds. And for example, every raptor species, virtually every raptor species, including every almost every hawk species, well, actually every hawk species that I looked at, declined. All the swallows, all the thrushes. All the blackbirds, the cardinal-type birds like buntings and grosbeaks, there were seven entire families that of at least three species in the area that declined universally. That suggests broader possible patterns of causation. Yeah, that, yeah, it that, does. That something's affecting these species yeah. across the board. Yeah, yeah. and they're pro- it's probably not all the same thing, of course. These right. species have very different life histories and dietary and habitat requirements. So, you know, there, there are under, underlying reasons, I think, that may be group or species-specific. Right. But, but to be clear, you're talking both about that you can see in these data changes in both the overall number of observations and in the timing with which birds are coming back. Yeah, I, I tried to look at the timing a little bit. Those differences are a bit more subtle. Right. And I did see some things there. There are a few species that seem to be showing up earlier in the spring. Mm-hmm. Water birds that don't nest in this area seem to be reported less often in the breeding season for some reason. Hmm. Little Little things like that. And again, these are just sort of suggestions from the data, but they, the, there seem to be some, some interesting patterns going on. Yeah, and it's, so when we say they were reported less often, that's, that's what it is. This is presence-absence data. It's like a, a binary system, right? So we're not talking about actual numbers of birds, although as numbers decrease, you would expect them to be reported less often. I was often. just going to ask you how observation frequency relates to overall population numbers. Yeah. There must be some... There certainly is a relationship. Yeah. But you can see there, there could be enormous changes, enormous declines in the numbers of a very common species, and it still might be reported, you know, every time you go out, right. but in lower numbers. And right. the analysis that I did would not detect that. Right. So this gets to a sort of underlying issue here and an important aspect of this whole story is that these declines are interesting and frankly alarming if true but how do we know if the numbers you're seeing in the data in eBirds database or anything else actually reflect real world developments yeah well we seldom really know <laughs> that kind of right. thing but the the safest thing to do is to compare what you're finding in one data set against some other data set. And that's part of the reason that we have these large scale data sets so that, you know, if you see something going on, you can maybe determine whether it's a really local phenomenon or just a fluke of the data, or is there something real going on? And fortunately with birds, which are about the best studied organisms there are. Good point. Yeah, we, we do have some pretty rigorous long-term data sets out there. So if you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report. I'm Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River, and I'm talking today with Ken Burton, here in his capacity as a uber bird nerd, author of 
Common Birds of Northwest California and a Birding Guide to Humboldt County. And we're talking about patterns in observational data, bird counts, that may reflect changes in populations and, well, broader questions. Yeah, may again being the operative word. So there's a a study, a government program called the Breeding Bird Survey. Mm -hmm. And that's been in place since 1966 on the West Coast, 68. And that's a very a very rigorous protocol-driven standardized survey. Surveyors go out and go to predetermined stops spaced half a mile apart. They record everything they see and hear within three minutes and move on to the next stop, which is half a mile away. So it's repeatable, it's, it's standardized, and tends to give us pretty good numbers. It doesn't really have to be adjusted too much to, to provide valuable, you know, statistically viable information. So getting back to the question of how we can be, how, how sure we can be in the kind of data you're looking at by comparing the eBird database that's basically citizen science, people reporting mm-hmm. the birds they see yeah. on their smartphones, you can compare it to this much more carefully conducted and rigorous government study and, and say, hey, we're getting similar results here. And be or not, confident. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and part of the part of the potential problem is that eBird is so new <laughs> that it it is still evolving. eBirders' habits are still evolving. There are some trends that I want to explore a little bit more that could be could be producing, you know, a false negative basically. So this is a really fascinating. This relatively novel technology, the supercomputers in all of our pockets, our cell phones. Mm-hmm is allowing people to use a pretty sophisticated program to figure out what birds they're seeing and record their observations. Mm-hmm. And But it's also evolving because, hey, mm-hmm. <laughs> are you still using the programs you used in 2005? Well, Probably no, I'm not. not even using this one the same way I did when I started. Right. So how is the program changing and how does that change the observations? Well, so if you go back to what I said about it, allowing people to enter their historic observations. Right. You know, probably people just went out and drove around all day and didn't really keep track of exactly where they were, how far they went, what time they started and stopped. It's just they were out birding, right? right. That's what birding used to be. And maybe they, they, you know, they had a species list with a rough location. And, right. I and saw so them out by the marsh. Yeah, yeah. and they've dumped right. that into eBird over the years. So, but... Those kinds of lists are not really all that useful for analysis purposes. They're they're good for personal record keeping, and that's why eBird accepts them. But the the folks that run eBird, which is the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, they are they're getting more refined in their analyses and in the the programming and in what they are asking of their contributors. And so they're now saying, please limit your observations to no more than five miles of travel. And there's new sort of public eBird locations springing up all the time. So I think that eBird users, I'm judging from my own evolution, right. are, are being more, more and more precise about their, their lists. So their lists are representing increasingly smaller distances and time periods. And so that, by its very nature, would decrease the likelihood of any given species being detected on any given report. Because people aren't wandering around just looking yeah, wherever. Right. They're staying local. Yeah. Right. But right. I think that they are 
more likely to miss the less common species. You know, if you're out, if you're doing a, an hour versus half an hour, right. okay, you're more likely to miss a less common species in half right. an hour. Because they're less common. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so, so that yeah. answers one of my other questions, which is, are people looking at all kinds of birds? Are they looking at crows and ravens and pigeons oh, yeah. and stuff as much as like well, oddballs? I, we and, sure hope so. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, this really gets thrown off. Yeah. Okay. But... Yes, I believe so. I mean, we certainly get more more accurate numbers from the less common species. It's very hard to come up with an accurate count of thousands and thousands of starlings or right. killdeer or whatever. Right. Whereas, you know, you see two ferruginous hawks and you're going to put down two, two ferruginous, ferruginous hawks. So, right. and and the folks that are massaging and analyzing the, these numbers, they understand that, but you know, as long as people's error rates are relatively consistent over time, then that sort of washes out if you're looking at trend information. Okay, so we've just spent a little while talking about reasons to be cautious. Yeah. But you've made some fairly strong statements in, in terms of the patterns you're seeing, you know, in the data. You wouldn't have said that if you thought this was just bad numbers or, or, you know, some kind of statistical anomaly. Right. And I, and I did find fairly good congruence between the breeding bird survey data for the Pacific North Pacific rainforest region, which is what we're a part Our of temperate range and the changes in eBird that I was seeing. So yeah, there's, there's some consistency there. So, so what explanations other than bad data yeah. might account for the declines we're yeah. seeing. Yeah, well, again, I think it depends a lot on which group okay. birds you're talking about. They're going to be susceptible to different sorts of threats. But, yeah, let's look at some of these groups that I found kind of widespread declines in. So there's there's a lot of concern for grassland species in general, not just here but all over the place. And Planet one. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, grasslands, I mean, our grasslands are already highly altered from their natural state. And they've been, you know, almost all of our native grasses are gone. They've been replaced by invasive annual grasses. But a lot of the animals... And by farmland. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the animals, grassland animals, have adjusted to that change, and they still use those habitats. But they've historically kind of been regarded as disposable I think by humans and and that's the habitat that's most easily and most readily converted to development whether you know to, residential commercial or frankly renewable energy you know I'm not dissing renewable energy by any means but but it is eating up a fair amount of but habitat but the big flat places with no trees are where it's easier yeah, to put photovoltaics ex- exactly, or wind towers right exactly sure. And then another group of birds that seems to be in pretty big trouble is what we call the aerial insectivores, mm-hmm. swallows, for example, flycatchers. And that, I think, points to a really, really frightening phenomenon that we're just sort of starting to begin to appreciate, which is apparently global collapses of the insect community. At a minimum, sharp declines in insect populations that have been observed regionally in places like Europe and places where ecosystems are heavily altered, where and the tropics. a lot of pesticides in use. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard predictions that 40% of insect species may be gone by the end of this century and huge declines in 
the rest. And, and that is the foundation right there. If you pull, I am now, frankly, more concerned about that than I am about climate change. Right. And not that they're not related, right? I, climate change has to be one of the factors that's behind this. Right. We're going to, let's come back to that question. But for many of us, for, for me and my own career in conservation work, you know, I came into this because I was terrified of mass extinction. I saw that we were losing species across the planet and, frankly, that my own country wasn't doing all that it could to conserve species like at the time the northern spotted owl. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw that we had an an opportunity, frankly, to do the thing we were telling, you know, countries in South America, Latin America, and Africa to do, you know. You know, that remains a, a hugely important element of the crisis that we're facing as as human species we're we're losing the creatures we co-evolved on this planet with and in a lot of ways climate change has sort of drowned out that level of concerns i i just heard someone a commentator talking about climate change as if that's sort of the equivalent of environmental concerns writ large and it's Mm. not Mm -hmm. i mean that's I think what's really important for folks to understand is that we started with this loss of habitat and loss of species, and we're adding to that now. Yeah, that's true. And again, I think that climate change is a driver behind a lot of species loss. Right. It's an amplifier. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But... You know, with insects, the the primary culprit that most people identify is habitat loss. Right. And then chemicals, pesticides, and just general. Well, they've been they've done their job very effectively. Yeah. And and they also you know they get into water, and aquatic insects, especially ones that you know have aquatic larval stages, are among the the biggest. The biggest just, losses. They're right extremely now. susceptible to those com- yeah. compounds. Yeah. So the Onion, Nate's satirical <laughs> online paper, just ran a story the other night suggesting that birds look seriously into switching over to a seed-based diet. Yes. I mean, well, I, I hope. I just hope everyone realizes that the Onion is pure satire. Yeah. Yes, but. I suppose if birds could stop eating insects, that might help both of them survive longer. But yes, it's satire. Painful. (laughs) It would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Yeah. So if you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report, not the Doom and Gloom Report. I'm Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with the Friends of the Eel River, and I'm talking today with Ken Burt, the author of A Birding Guide to Humboldt County and Common Birds of Northwest California. And we're talking about some local trends in, in bird observation data and what they might mean both locally and, and globally. You're suggesting that we're seeing, among other things, steep declines in, in birds that feed on insects. But you also said, Ken, that the drought that we've experienced recently here in California could be part of what, what's hurting land birds. Absolutely, especially in you know a very recent time frame. So we could expect them to bounce back from that? If the if the weather bounces back, potentially, yeah. I mean, again, they've got all these other barriers to get over. But sure, birds have enormous variation from year to year in breeding success based largely on weather conditions. If there's been 
you know, good rainfall at the right time of year produces lush vegetative growth, which in turn produces large insect populations and good nesting cover, then they can have an outrageously successful breeding season. And ironically, reduced snowpack in and of itself can be really good for bird mountain bird breeding success. It, it opens up habitat much earlier, and, and they take advantage of that. If it just happens once in a while. Yeah, and doesn't lead to long-term drought and the drying out of wet meadows and mountain areas and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. But a recent study from a program that I actually used to coordinate showed that the bird community in Yosemite appeared to be benefiting from reduced snowpack in Yosemite. Huh. Yeah. So not all the birds that you have data on showed declines in the number of observations. Some increased. Are there Some any, did. Yeah, about a third of them. Yeah. Anything in those numbers jumps out at you? Well, the species that are well associated with humans generally seem to be doing okay. So we're Although, talking about your corvids. Well, I mean, even no, even corvids showed declines. So I, I sort of just contradicted myself. You know, everybody assumes that raven and jay and crow populations are just mushrooming. There actually well, were been. declines in all of them during between these two periods that I looked at. Interesting. Um, that may be something with the data. Although some of them were pretty substantial. What about um, ruby finches? So um, my mom calls the, them lipstick birds. Oh, house finches, I yeah. think is they yeah, house finch, one of our commonest associates had a 9% decrease and and that actually is mirrored across the board in these other programs. Breeding bird survey negative, also the Christmas bird count which I haven't mentioned yet today. It's another citizen science program, uh-huh. but it's the longest-running biological monitoring program. So in tell existence. us a little about that. Over it happens at Christmas, I take it. Three weeks around Christmas time. It's pretty unstructured, really. People essentially just go out birding. Mm-hmm. The, the areas are consistent over time, and people do track their efforts so that their numbers can be adjusted by the effort expended to collect them. So, you know, the, you wind up with a unit of effort called a party hour, right. which doesn't, isn't that quite the like same fun. as yeah. happy hour. But, right. you know, and we've talked about this on previous shows, but a party of one or more people birding together for an hour is a party hour. So, you know, the, it, it can be standardized that way. And that's that's been going for 120 years now. So... You know, it's that's a real long-term data set. And so I threw those numbers into this as well. And with House Finch, at least, all across the board, whether I looked at it at the state level or the physiographic regional level, everything coincides. It's negative. So, And I personally couldn't say what's going on, but they are, you know, largely insectivores and and also granivores, meaning they eat most a lot of grass seeds. So if grassland is disappearing and insects are disappearing, it's no big surprise that house finches are disappearing. Even a relatively well-adapted kind of flexible species that gets along really well at the disturbed edge of human Yeah, human and, and that's the, yeah. the scariest part of this whole thing, you know, that even some of these really common familiar species seem to be going down. You did ask for increases, yeah. so I can name a few. 
cackling goose, known around here mostly as a Lucian goose, right. way up. Right. And they, you know, everybody can see that. They were once thought to be extinct, which is ironic. And, and there are close to a quarter of a million of them now. So that's a big success story if you're not a dairy farmer. And right. Eurasian collared dove, the biggest increase of all anywhere, up 99% between the two time periods I looked at. And amazingly, I looked at California breeding bird survey data for the most recent decade and the decade before that. And the increase is something like 450%. So they found um, this habitat and have moved into it? Yeah, here? yeah they, they got to Florida on their own from the Bahamas, where they were introduced, spread across North America in an unprecedented fashion, and have taken over the continent. Huh. And, and are still increasing dramatically. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to ask you what we could do locally that you think would maximize our prospects of holding on to the bird species we have here. You've talked about grasses, but it strikes me that wetlands might be our greater opportunity here locally. Uh, perhaps. You know, as I said, the water, the aquatic species didn't show such consistent declines as They're the doing relatively land birds. Yeah, I mean, some of them are certainly down, and but a, a lot of them don't breed locally, and mm. it's we can keep providing good winter habitat for them, but we can't do much for their breeding right. success. So, right. and and that's not really something that individuals have much control over either. We as a society, though, y- yeah, what, what could we do? Yeah, collect. Well, as much habitat preservation as possible is always a good thing, yeah. and. You know, if you want to talk about what individuals can do, I would say the three biggest things probably that that are really practical in nature are landscaping with native plants as much as possible because right. the food that birds depend on for the breeding season depends on native plants. Right. And I'm especially talking about caterpillars. Right, and it's hard to think about gardening for caterpillars, but we have to do but it. But if you want, if we want if to keep, we the want birds, birds we yeah. need to grow, grow um, bugs and yeah. keep your cats away from the birds. And generally, that's going to mean either keeping them inside or building them a catio. Yeah, and then They're both pretty practical solutions. They are. Yeah. It's, it can be done, and yeah. and then your voting habits. Right. You know, vote for representatives who share your values and specifically share these values. Thanks, Ken. Anything else you want to add? Well, yeah, don't despair, I guess. I'm, uh, sometimes I'm tempted to say uh, appreciate the birds while they're still here. Could say that about almost anything These guys that are we tiny feathered dinosaurs. They've been here for yeah. freaking ever. I, I they, know. They, I, this has been their planet a lot longer than it's been ours. And, and it, yeah, we would do well to keep that sort of thing in mind and... Yeah, I mean, honestly, I it, it is hard to remain optimistic in the face of all of these things, and I'm I'm sorry to be the you know the bearer of bad news, but it's nice to be back in the studio. Well, thanks for your clear-eyed look at what's hard to see, but I think very important. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, thanks, Scott. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Scott Greason. I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Ken Burton, the author of Common Birds of Northwest California and A Birding Guide to Humboldt County. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089.
You can hear this broadcast again on the archive programs page of the station's website at khsu.org or using your podcast app. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Tune in again next week at this same time for the Eco News Report.